any theory that invalidates human reasoning must itself be invalid and incoherent because you reach it by human reasoning. Mm. And these days, even atheist thinkers are realizing that the naturalistic, materialistic, reductionist worldview, which reduces thought simply to the firing of neurons in the brain, must be wrong because it empties the world of meaning. Welcome to the Follower Podcast, a place for conversations about following Jesus to the depths of his heart and the ends of the earth. My name is Matthew Lewis, and I am so glad that you are here. Well, welcome back to the Follower Podcast, everybody. It's good to be in your ears and uh, always grateful to have this space with you. Uh, if you listen to our last episode, we had Oz Guinness uh, with us, and we got so much feedback from that episode, we thought we'd just continue pressing on a little bit in that vein. And so we have Judy Shaw on the show again. Welcome to the podcast again, Judy. Hello. Thanks so much, Matt. Good to be back. Yeah, good to have you. And Judy, you brought a friend with you. Uh, just introduce uh, your friend to us and, and who we're going to be speaking to today. Yes. And again, another honor to call a friend. This is Professor John Lennox, who's joining us tonight. John, we are so honored to have you with us. Thank you so much for giving up the time and energy to be with us. John, many people will know your name and know that you are a well-renowned speaker, Christian apologist, renowned author of many books. But I would love to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself as well. Well, thank you very much. It's lovely to be with someone from my home country, uh, Judy, and uh, with someone in South Africa where I've had some very, very interesting experiences. I'm an emeritus professor, which is a nice Latin word for being very old. And um, all of my life, I've been involved in essentially teaching mathematics, although in recent years, I've worked at the interface of science, theology, and philosophy on the intellectual defense of the Christian faith. I've been interested in that since my school days. And growing up in Northern Ireland, was interesting because my parents were very unusual. It's a very sectarian country, as many of you know, and yet my parents were Christian without being sectarian. They tried to employ in their store equally from the Catholic and Protestant sides, which meant they got bombed. And I once asked my dad why he took the risk, and he said, look, I am taught by Genesis that all uh, men and women irrespective of their worldview, are made in the image of God, and I am going to treat them like that. Mm. And that had a profound effect on me, and I've tried in my own limited way to do the same, that high value of human beings as created in the image of God. Uh, Jordan Peterson recently, in commenting on that statement in Genesis, said, man, he said, this is the foundation of all our values, and we ignore it at our peril. So that was very important. Secondly, my parents loved me enough to allow me space to think and come to my own conclusions. And they introduced me not only to the richness of Christianity, but also to the value of culture and other worldviews. 
And I rapidly got interested in the reasons why I was concerned, even as a boy, what is true and what is not true. It wasn't just a question of finding religion as such helpful. It was a question of knowing what is true and being uh, uh, finding science of great interest. I wondered early on, does science tell us everything, as people like Dawkins today would say, or how does it fit into the bigger picture? So a lot of those ideas were set when I was relatively young, and I've followed them all my life. I think the main point would be that people from my country, as Judy will know, are constantly accused of a Freudian slip, really, in the sense that uh, they believe in God because it's in their genetics and because every Irish person believes in God and they fight mm. about it. And so <laughs> I decided when I went to Cambridge that I would make myself vulnerable and I wanted to get to know people who did not share my worldview and ask them questions, find out why they held their worldview. And I've done that for my entire life. And I must say that the net result of it is I spent my time questioning what I believe, and that has served to strengthen it immeasurably over the many, many years that I've been active in this. Fantastic, John. Thank you for sharing that. And on that, you've written some wonderful books, including Determined to Believe, Against the Flow, and more recently, Where is God in a Coronavirus World? And we'll come back to that um, and come back to what you just said there about worldviews. We want to unpack that a little bit more in this conversation. But first, a little icebreaker conversation for you, John. I don't know when the last time was that you answered a question like this, but many people would love to have you around their dinner table. But I'm intrigued if you could have three guests of your choosing, alive or dead, at your dinner table, who would you have? That's a question I've asked to many people because it really is a good icebreaker. I think my choice for this evening, and I might have a different one tomorrow, is that I would love to have dinner with Adam and Eve. And the third choice, if you insist on one, would be C.S. Lewis. Wow, great choice. Yeah, thank you. I think mine would be similar to C.S. It would be great to have him at the dinner table. Yeah. probably want to know why. C.S. Lewis would be my choice because although I listened to him at Cambridge, I'm old enough for that, I never actually met him. And I'd love to discuss with him. He's been such a help to me. In fact, the main reason for having dinner with him, I would want to pay for it because I would want to say thank you to him for his help to me. See, I don't know what it's like to be a grown-up and an atheist. Mm. And so he did. And he acted as a kind of mentor for me, what atheism feels like from the inside. So that was very helpful. But as for Adam and Eve, I would just be fascinated at talking to them about how they came to grips as, so to speak, newly minted humans with the world that they encountered. Now, the nearest I have read to anyone getting some idea of what that must have been like is C.S. Lewis himself and his science fiction novels. Mm. But I'd love to sit and just hear how they, for example, 
God told them to name the animals. But how did they do that? What what criteria did they use? What what did it mean? And how did they cope with language and and all this kind of thing? I'm just fascinated by that because I've had a lifelong interest in communication and language. So there are my three dinner guests. Great. What a dinner party that would be, for sure. Yeah, thank you for that. And John, can can I ask quickly on the C.S. Lewis thing? Is there is there one thought or 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 idea that C.S. Lewis has given you that kind of rises above the rest? I know that his body of work is enormous, but is there something that just stands out to you where you this was particularly helpful for you? Well, I think one of the main things is that he saw very early on, uh, as he put it, that any theory that invalidates human reasoning must itself be invalid and incoherent because you reach it by human reasoning. Mm. And these days, even atheist thinkers are realizing that the naturalistic, materialistic, reductionist worldview, which reduces thought simply to the firing of neurons in the brain, must be wrong because it empties the world of meaning. And what I take from that is that the materialistic worldview doesn't only shoot itself in the foot, and that's pretty painful, (laughs) but it shoots itself in the brain, which is fatal. And I think this is a central argument that I've used in several of my more recent books. Thank you for that, John. That's very helpful. And well, on that note, I think it's great to now get into our Q&A. And Matt, it would be great to hear more about this topic that we're uncovering tonight. Yeah, uh, John, I think... Oz spoke a lot about ideologies. I think there were four that kind of jumped out at us that we we hoped you could maybe cover a little bit your perspectives on some. The first one would be secularism. The other one would be atheism, uh, skepticism, and cynicism. So so there'll be four. Uh, I have a few quotes, if I can, uh, from you, John, that I'd like to use just to bounce in there, if that's okay. So around the idea of, of secularism, you tell a story of when you were at Cambridge, you were sitting next to this Nobel Prize uh, winner who was very intelligent, and you kind of wanted to lean in and ask him something. And his response to you was that if you wanted to succeed in the area of, of science, you had to give up on these childish ideas about God. And I thought that really sort of captured the idea of secularism. And I wondered if you could speak to that and, and how you've journeyed with with that going forward in, in your ministry? Well, it was a seminal experience. And although it was terrifying at the time, I think it really put steel into my heart. And in general, uh, secularism coming from the word secula, which essentially talks about this present age, gives people a world that's too small to live in. Mm. And uh, in science with the dominant secular worldview being naturalism, I just feel that in the end, that reduces meaning to nothing. Now, there have been developments very recently, uh, just what, a few months ago, Ian McGilchrist published an absolutely mind-blowing book that people are now hailing as one of the most important books of the last hundred years. It's called The Matter with Things. And his basic idea is that we've got two hemispheres in our brain. And the left one, very roughly speaking, 
does what the right one does and vice versa, but there are subtle differences. And the main difference is that the left one tends to analyze things and break them up into pieces, but fails to see the whole picture. And we need the right hemisphere to see the whole picture, to see meaning. And he says, what has happened in the last 300 years culturally is we've allowed the left hemisphere to be dominant. Mm. And we now allow it completely to fill our horizon. And hence, we've got secularism, materialism and reductionism. And we need to reverse that by realizing that the brain is actually much bigger than many people think. And the book I'm reading at the moment, it's nearly 3000 pages, but it's quite electrifying. And I've found it enormously helpful in analyzing uh, certain cultural trends from the perspective of hard science. That's the interesting thing. He justifies all his statements by hard neuroscience. So here is science pointing us to the fact that science is not enough. It is mostly a left brain activity and cannot give us answers to the biggest questions in life, which mostly have to do with meaning and values. Hmm. So interesting. And so what you're saying is that, uh, you know, with a secular worldview, we, can, we might be able to develop the mind, but there can be an absence of the soul. I think it's like, you know, where there's a measurement of, of secular success, it's around healthcare, it's around governance, it's around education, but that doesn't get to this right side of the brain like you're talking about. Would you agree with that? I would. Uh, the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who was a, really a very bright man in the UK, uh, formulated it, responding to the view that I've just stated. He said, you know, science takes things apart to see how they work. Religion puts them together to see what they mean. Mm. Now, that's a simple statement, but it gets it exactly. And people today are longing for meaning and identity and purpose and values. And they're not getting them through the dissections and reductions of the scientific so-called worldview. Absolutely. And this, you know, this points to the idea of, of atheism. You say this around atheism, which is that, that faith is a response to evidence, not the, rejo not the rejoicing in its absence, um, which I think is what you're saying as well here is that because sometimes people will say, well, you need meaning. So then you'll jump to the idea of a God in order to fill that void. But you're actually saying, no, the evidence leads us to this idea of God. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's extremely important. I, I mentioned the kind of Freudian reaction to Irish people being religious. But it's very important. And again, this is uh, from the, the view of psychiatrists, the leading German psychiatrist. And he points out that if there is no God, then Freud's argument that God is a wish fulfillment, wanting a father figure in the sky to support you, is a very good argument mm. uh, to show why religion was generated. That is, if there is no God. But then he adds, if there is a God, the very same argument from Freud uh, shows you that atheism is a wish fulfillment, the desire not to have to have anything to do with the God who may judge you and so on. And he delivers the fatal blow by saying, you see, the Freudian argument doesn't answer the question whether there's a God or not, and that is the key question. 
And I think we have to realize, and I've done it all my life, to take atheist arguments seriously, but to notice that many of them can be reversed and used to demolish the atheism that's using them to try to demolish Christianity. And I think just in listening to a bit of your work, John, you consistently take the position that you are not claiming that you can categorically prove God. I think what you maybe argue for is is a consistent skepticism across the board, yeah, and, and an engagement with ideas. Well, I think the nuanced way to respond to that is proof. The word proof has two distinct meanings uh, in most languages. And the first one is the rigorous mathematical type proof where you have, as in Euclid's geometry, a set of axioms and you draw conclusions. You only get that kind of proof in mathematics nowhere else, not even in physics, chemistry, or any of the other hard sciences. There, you get proof in the sense of providing evidence, indicators, signposts, so that things can be beyond reasonable doubt. Now, that doesn't mean that it's a weak kind of proof. For example, when I flew to Cape Town, I trusted the jet aircraft that took me there. I couldn't prove to you that it was going to get me there, but I had enough evidence of the reliability of the aircraft of the airline to risk my life on it. And I think that's the important thing, that all of us know when it's explained to us at least what evidence-based trust is. And if we don't base our faith or trust on evidence, we're going into very dangerous territory. And that's the territory of blind faith. Unfortunately, many of our atheist friends, in fact, fewer than used to be, but people like Dawkins, they have misunderstood faith, which is an ordinary word meaning trust and so on. We use it in everyday life. It's not just a religious concept, but they have defined it as believing where there's no evidence, but that's blind faith. That is not faith in any ordinary day-to-day uh, -day sense. And that has created immense confusion. Mm. So I'm just trying to track our conversation and what's developing here as a thought. So we have this overarching sort of social secularism, which is maybe the, uh, you could call it, call this maybe, this is the water that we're swimming in. Added to that is a, a sort of atheistic perspective that's leaving people uh, empty. But then underneath that is a, a predisposition sometimes to be skeptical even to the evidence. It's that idea of like, to the person who believes, uh, no proof is necessary, but to the person who won't believe, no proof is possible, regardless of what you could say. How would you respond to the skeptic who's saying, yeah, I, I can feel that emptiness. I can feel that lack of right brain in me. And, and even if you gave me the evidence, John, I might be persuaded, but I'm still positioned skeptically toward this, this idea. Well, I can only respond to an individual skeptic, and it depends entirely on their biography and their story up to this point. Generic questions very rarely get good answers because there aren't any generic answers. But I think if I make a, an attempt at that, I'd want to point out to people that skepticism comes from the word skeptine in Greek, which means essentially to check out at a distance. And that's a very wise thing. I'm a skeptic, and that surprises many people. Uh, I'm a skeptic. I check things out at a distance. But then I would want to explain to them that there are certain things in life where you have to get, give up your distance 
in order to experience them. If you want to get to know me as a person, you will have to give up some of your distance in the sense that you'll have to open yourself and talk to me and be vulnerable and allow me to interact with you. And I will say to them, look, it's perfectly fine to check things out at a distance, but there comes a point that in ordinary life, where you cannot always live like that. And the meaningful things in your life, I would reckon many of them have to do with abandoning part of your skepticism. But I wouldn't at all recommend you abandon it all. And my Christian faith is strengthened by my skeptical investigations of it. I checked it out at a distance. I want to know the facts, but then it's not only facts. God is not a fact, he's a person. And that's where what I've just said about skepticism becomes highly relevant. You just cannot find out uh, what God is like essentially without making a reasonable experiment because there's enough evidence to back it up to trust him and to then experience what happens as you open yourself up to the possibility that God actually is capable of saying something to you and contacting you. I want to take a little bit of a turn to this idea of suffering, John, that you've spoken a lot on. And a key word that you've mentioned um, so far in our conversation has been meaning. And recently you wrote a book called Where is God? The Coronavirus. It's been your most recent book. It can be easy to be swayed by atheist arguments when we look at natural disasters and pandemics and suffering in all kinds of ways. How then can we see a loving God in that? What hope is there for the sceptic or the doubter whenever they're faced with such difficult circumstances like that? Well, this is the hard question, and it's hard for everybody. And there are no simplistic answers. That's absolutely clear. And we have to look at it from two distinct perspectives. The first is uh, the philosophical one, and that tends to be the one where people have questions, but they are not themselves suffering. They're watching someone else suffer. There is then the pastoral question of what do we do and how do we help and comfort people who are actually going through suffering? Now, those are two very different things, and most of us have encountered both. Now, at the first level, it seems very reasonable. And I understand people who say, right, that's the end. No God for me. How could there possibly be a God in light of the mess the world's in? And I say, okay, I'm with you. I've been in Auschwitz many times and I've wept every time. And we have to be very careful not to insult people whose experience of life has been such that really they see no other option but dismissing the idea of God. But having said that, I'll say to them, you know, as I face that question, I still believe in God. And they say, hey, but why? How can you possibly do that? Well, I try to say very gently, you think that atheism has solved the intellectual problem. And in a sense, it does. It just says this is the brute fact. This is the way the universe is. Get used to it. So it's removed the problem in one sense, but it's also removed any hope. Now, that might be the case. It might be true. But if it's removed all hope, then 
we still, our hearts, maybe illogically, cry out for some kind of hope. But then I analyze it a bit more. And, and I say, look, you react and you tell me that this is absolute evil, what's going on. But where do you get your concept of evil from? If there's no God, how do you, and here I'm really referring to deep insights of the Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky, who made the famous statement in the mouth of one of his characters, if God does not exist, everything is permissible. He didn't mean that atheists couldn't behave. What he meant was there's no rational dis uh, way of justifying a distinction between good and evil. And Dawkins actually says that. This world is just like you'd expect it to be. I'm paraphrasing. If at bottom, there's no justice, no good, no evil. DNA just is and we dance to its music. Well, if that is true, of course, that's the end of all morality. So you may forget about talking about the problem of evil. So the atheist way actually runs into huge difficulties philosophically. And as I've said, it may be true, but it removes all hope. Now, I have a serious problem with your question because I do believe in God. And we can argue, uh, and probably have done, especially when we were young at university, uh, all night long maybe, uh, what we would expect a good, all-powerful God to be able to do. But we never solved that question. That's the thing I observed over life. Nobody has a satisfactory answer to that. And as a mathematician, I'm used to uh, dealing with hard questions. But if I can't answer a question, I try to rephrase the question to see if I can get further. And I think there is a way of rephrasing this question. And it's this. We've got to first grant that the world and our experience is mixed. I call it beauty and barbed wire or beauty and bombs. We see some good, we see beautiful things in the sunset, etc., uh, etc., et uh, looking across the vast Kruger plains and the animals and all the rest of it. But then we see barbed wire and bombs and terrorism and everything else. Now, first of all, any worldview that is worthy of the name must take that mixed picture seriously. So here's my question, and it's as hard as the first question, and it's this. Granted that it's like that, is there anywhere any evidence that there is a God whom we could trust with it? Hmm. That's a tough question, but I believe there is evidence because suffering lies at the heart of the Christian faith. And I often say to people, look, you may want to dismiss Christianity or have already done so, but have you listened to what it says before you throw it away? And what it says is, its central claim is that Jesus Christ is actually God become human. And so we've every right to just follow that through for a moment, suppose it's true, and then ask, what is God doing on a cross? Mm -hmm. And the obvious response to that is, at the very least, it's showing us that God has not remained distant from human suffering, but has become part of it. Now, that's hugely important, but wouldn't be of any significance if the cross was the end of the story. But it isn't. According to the New Testament, 
and history and very importantly, human experience today, Jesus rose from the dead. And that shows everything in a different light because there's where I begin to see hope. And the idea that death is not the end. Humans long for that uh, these days. That's why there's so much talk about super intelligence uploading our brains and artificial uh, intelligence and, and so on. But it seems to me that the biblical answer to this, it, it's not so much an answer, but as a way in to the possibility of an answer that it shows us what God is like. And if God is like Christ, then he understands suffering. Mm. And also, there's a sheer fact that throughout the ages, as C.S. Lewis once pointed out rather wryly, centuries have passed where there have been no anesthetics, and yet people have still trusted God over these issues. And that's a very remarkable fact that there's been huge pain that now we don't have to undergo because of anesthesia. And yet people have trusted God because they found in the central message of Christianity, the death of resurrection of Christ, giving up their distance, to refer to the earlier comment, and coming and making, you can call it an experiment if you like, but Christ makes a claim that can be tested, if you want to put it in a scientific way. He claims that if people face the mess they made of their own lives, and possibly, sadly, those of others, and repent of it, change their minds about it, and trust Christ to save them from this, then they will receive certain things right now. Uh, they will receive forgiveness, peace with God. And I, I know very few people who wouldn't like peace. Uh, and they will receive a new life and a new power to live. Now, I've seen that happen again and again, not only in my own life and that of my family and friends, but in many, many young people and older people over the years. And I often say to folks, look, if you meet a student who's at the end of their tether, maybe hooked on narcotics or something, they don't know what to do, there's no meaning in life, and then you meet them six months later and they're radiant with joy and meaning, and you say, what's happened to you? They may say, well, I became a Christian or I met Christ or I've been born again. They may describe it in various different ways, but there's no denying that something very real has happened to them that I've never seen to happen to anybody through being converted to atheism or secularism mm. yeah that's powerful thank you for that i think john maybe where, where we wanted to land is that i was really interested in your your personal relationship with jesus so what i mean by that is moving a little bit from the head to the heart for a minute and you know john lennox is known as this incredible intellectual and 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 that and and justly so and grateful for the gift you are to the church but I wonder about um, how could we learn from you about your following of Jesus, you know? So not only what you think, but how do you live? And how has that formed your friendship with Jesus? And what has that meant to you, particularly at this time during coronavirus, when suffering has been close to your life as well, you know? It's a very risky thing, putting yourself forward as an example. I know the Apostle Paul did that, be followers of me but he qualified it, even as I am of Christ. Mm. And you say we're moving from the 
head to the heart. But actually, we've been talking quite a bit about the heart because especially the problem of suffering is a huge heart problem. And the business of relationship with God, that is a deeply personal problem. And it's very hard for me to sit here and, and say, well, what can people learn from me? The only thing they can learn from me is if I'm being faithful in understanding and explaining God's word, because that is where they want to find their anchor, not in me, but in Christ, in his word. And what I would encourage people to do, of course, is that they need to spend time in Scripture. I was glad that I was taught that when I was much younger. And it's very easy, even as a Christian, to be actively involved in so-called Christian activity, but have very little time to immerse yourself prayerfully and meditatively in the Word of God. So for my wife and myself, it's very important for us to regularly pray and read Scripture together and engage in those personal, deep exercises that make the whole thing come alive mm. and to take Christ into account in all the details of our lives. You know, one little story I will tell you is when I got married over 50 uh, four years ago now, the minister uh, read the statement, in the beginning, God, the first uh, words of the Bible. He had no idea that I would one day be involved in defending those words intellectually. But he didn't use them that way. He said, you know, you're getting married today. This is a new beginning. In the beginning, God. There'll be more new beginnings, a job perhaps children, in the beginning, God, and I'd never forgot it. And that sense of waking up each day and enjoying the company that God is interested in all of life. And if there's one thing I would say is the sheer importance of not dividing life into two parts. There's a lot of that around, the idea that we do whatever work we do, whether it's on a farm or teaching or in an office, we do, that's our secular work. And then in our spare time, we serve God. We've got to get way beyond that and realize that God is interested in every aspect of our lives. And that throws a radiance over life that makes it absolutely thrilling mm. that we can wake up each day and say, Lord, what are you going to teach me today? So it's it's developing that friendship. And if that's what your question means, then that would be my answer to it. No, thank you yeah. for that, John. And thank you for that helpful correction as well, this idea that a lot of what we've been talking about is so profoundly related to the heart. I think that's really helpful to hear as well. John, thank you. That was so beautifully unpacked. We really appreciate you taking the time to share. Any concluding thoughts just on this topic of what encouragement can you give this current generation who are swimming in hot water with secularism and atheism and a cancellation culture? Any last words to staying close to Christ and developing that friendship you just beautifully shared there? Well, that's right. I would strongly emphasize the constant opening the window of our hearts to God through his word, anchor it in his word, and to begin to develop a conversation with the Lord to guide us in our lives and to hold us above the 
tremendous current that is flowing against us and to help us defend Christianity. But I would say one of the most important ways of doing this is to learn to let go of our shyness, our fears, and sometimes our feelings of shame and begin to share the Christian message with others. I've been so concerned about this over recent years. I've written a simple little book. It's cheaper than a cup of coffee. It's called Have No Fear. And I would encourage Christians to get involved because once you begin to see, and for me, it was hugely important at university, the first person that I saw coming to faith in Christ that didn't originally share my worldview that didn't come from any kind of Christian background. And I saw that Christ had the power to change people's world's view, worldview. Now, once you experience that, it will change you permanently. One more thing. One of the people who's part of the follower community, they asked, they said, when you speak to John this evening, would you ask if you could pray over us as a generation, just as a father sort of praying over a blessing over a generation? Would you mind doing that for us, John? Not at all. Father, we thank you so much for this person that made this suggestion because it's so important that you speak into our generation, the young generation, the people in whose hands the future is, that you are living and alive today just as you've been in all of my lifetime. And I pray that you will equip people with the right tools, the right understanding of yourself and your word to fight against secularism and to stand up with real courage for what they believe and to embody it in their own lives so that they are credible witnesses. God grant that all of us are able to do this in your strength. And we pray, therefore, that we make an impact on our world for the Lord Jesus. For we ask it for his glory. Amen. 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 Thank you, John. Really appreciate your time. Uh, guys, if you're listening to this, uh, all the um, books suggested and all the resources will be in the show notes. You'll be able to click links to everything that's been talked about. And then next week on the podcast, we have with us Mads Dasel, who is a pastoral therapist and doing incredible work with Edify in churches all over South Africa. We talk about uh, what it means to live into the fullness of who you are in Christ. And here is a short clip of that discussion. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next time. Well, Scripture says, work out your salvation. And that word work out is katagazima. In other words, do whatever it is you need to do to show the evidence of a, of, of a saved soul. Mm. So, you know, I'm still looking for a gym instructor that will do the workout for me <laughs> <laughs> and I get the benefits. It doesn't work. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, do the workout. Work it out. Yes, yes. If, if he says you're a new creation in Christ, work out what that means in mm. your soul, in your thoughts, in your emotions, in your behaviors. If you truly understood what it means to be a son or daughter of the king, how differently would you be living your life? 